Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Hello, Precision Insights podcast listeners. This is your host, Roy St. Clair, excited to take you on another journey related to precision medicine, this time focusing on pharmacy services in long-term care. We've heard a lot about long-term care in the last year, much of it tragic. Here at Genexus, we've also heard from many pharmacists doing everything they can to elevate the quality of care they provide in long-term care settings, including intense preparation and innovation to support the earliest vaccination efforts continuing today, as well as the implementation of more holistic medication management processes, which often include the use of pharmacogenetic insights. For today's episode, I really wanted to have a discussion about the transformative moment that long-term care pharmacy is in, how pharmacists were involved in the vaccine rollout, and how clinical pharmacists in long-term care are preparing for more precision medicine as the pandemic passes us by. With that in mind, I am thrilled to be joined by someone at the center of the industry, Stephen Creasy. Stephen is the Director of Clinical Services at Pharmerica, where he helps identify and evaluate innovative ways that their clinical pharmacy team can provide enhanced care to the patients each and every day. Stephen, welcome to the show. First and foremost, thank you for having me on. I'm certainly excited to talk about these topics, and I'm hoping to give your listeners some insight into the long-term care industry from the pharmacy perspective, which, of course, <laughs> includes some of the challenges we faced over the past year. I'm also excited to talk about precision medicine because it's definitely where a lot of innovation is occurring and how we drive even closer to individualized care. I love that. And leading up to this, we've had a chance to have quite a few great talks around these topics, and I'm really looking forward to sharing them with our listeners. Before we jump in, though, Stephen, maybe you can tell our audience a little bit more about yourself, about for America, and really ultimately why you got into long-term care pharmacy to begin with. Sure. So I live in Louisville, Kentucky with my wife, our dog, and our cat. And I've been a practicing pharmacist for the past 10 years. And I've really had the great opportunity to work in a couple of different settings. So right out of school, I completed an acute care postgraduate year one residency at the University of Louisville Hospital. And I've since worked in community retail settings. I helped to start a large, well-known pet pharmacy. And for the majority of it, I've actually been working in long-term care with Pharmerica. Now, my reason for getting into long-term care isn't necessarily glamorous, but it's certainly uh, serendipitous. So I wanted a new challenge that would bring me back into more clinical work, and I had the opportunity to start working at this local closed-door long-term care pharmacy, uh, and I fell in love with it. It was a mix of both dispensing, similar to what I had in community pharmacy, but also had that clinical aspect of taking care of a frail population and that may be on an IV medication where you need to order therapeutic levels in order to guide their next dose. So with Pharmerica being headquartered in Louisville, I was able to jump on an opportunity to transition to the corporate office and start working on cost containment and clinical programs and products for our clients. So for those of you your listeners that aren't familiar with Pharmerica, we are best described as an institutional pharmacy service provider that provides medications and other services. So we do this currently for individuals in over 2,500 skilled nursing facilities, but that's not all we do. We also provide services to senior and independent living facilities or assisted living facilities, behavioral health settings such as individuals with intellectual and development disabilities living in group homes, 
hospital pharmacy management services. We also have a home infusion division, a specialty pharmacy division, and have been increasing our footprint into the hospice setting arena. Now, we do this through a network of over 140 pharmacies serving all 50 states and with the help of over 6,000 healthcare professionals. Terrific. But I, I need to go back to the start of that answer, Stephen. You mentioned a pet pharmacy at the start of that response. I did. <laughs> you did. So you spent some time at pet pharmacy and then you made this jump. And, and I love the jump. And I think we hear this from lots of other folks in long-term care pharmacy around combining clinical care with really high value and, and critical dispensing. But can you dig in on this pet pharmacy experience? How long were you working in pet pharmacy and what what was that like? So I was actually only there about seven months, um, and it's it's well known. You probably guess it starts with a C, ends in a Y. But Louisville is really the center of a lot of different pharmacy services, and I think part of it has to do with UPS having their world port here. So it's, it's a very nice centralized location if you're doing a mail order type of business. But the pet pharmacy is great. It was challenging, right, because it was really a, a startup for them. So what I found I was missing, though, was the clinical aspect of things, as well as some of that patient interaction. Just weren't really getting that on that online mail order type of model. Yeah, I, I completely understand. My St. Bernard is on pain medications, and she has a very tough time responding, telling me how that they're working for her. So I get it. Anyway, we can leave that aside. I think that's a fascinating <laughs> bit about your journey. But digging into PharAmerica, because you mentioned the breadth of the clinical programs you work on there and the breadth of settings where they operate, what have you learned about long-term pharmacy uh, along the way that has either surprised or excited you or, or that you think might be surprising to others? I think the, the biggest surprise um, was pretty much what I had just described, is I had blinders on. I thought long-term care was just nursing homes, but it's not, right? It, it's really, I think, best characterized as institutionalized settings. And I think that's also what excited me the most was finding that out because each of those different care settings has their own dynamics, their own needs. And part of my role now is to make sure we are providing and allowing our clients to provide the most cutting edge clinical and quality care that they can to the individuals entrusted to our care. And this could be staying on top of the most recent guidelines for a certain disease state's treatment. It could be figuring out how to mobilize our network to provide COVID-19 treatments and vaccines, or even introducing cutting-edge technologies such as pharmacogenomics. Personally, I love puzzles, and my job is constantly presenting them to me. So for me, it's truly one of those jobs where no day is ever the same. Yeah, that, that's certainly the case. And I, I imagine with the medication load you're seeing in a lot of those institutionalized settings, there are many puzzles yet to be solved. So it's great to hear that you all are working on it and dedicating such resources. For now, though, I would like to take this discussion towards 2020 and even now extending into 2021 and talk about all of the changes we've seen. So looking at that through the lens of, of transformation that has happened for patients, can you walk us through how you respond, how Far America responded as a pharmacy services organization to the pandemic and, and in particular, what was it like to work on the vaccine rollout? So I don't think there is a single industry, much less person, that hasn't been affected by COVID-19 to some degree. I mean, I think I even saw a news story at one point where one of those remote Amazon tribes, there was an individual, an adolescent that had contracted COVID-19. It reached that far across the world. But we've had 
to really learn to embrace change, which is hard, and to embrace it quickly, which is harder. So even today, guidance is is changing rapidly. It seems like every day there's some new piece of information that you have to take into consideration when you're making recommendations to clients that was not there the day before. And we knew we would have to support our clients and their residents. So from our standpoint as a pharmacy, we wanted to ensure we did our part to limit the spread of the virus as well as the spread of misinformation. And not to bore you or your listeners with all the the nitty-gritty details, but we did things like changing our delivery processes from plastic totes, you know, a hard impermeable surface to recyclable paper bags uh, or doing a single delivery drop-off point versus going around within a facility to all those different nursing stations and potentially promoting the intra-facility spread of coronavirus. We had to remain on top of all the different clinical information, whether it was positive or negative, and hydroxychloroquine comes to mind there, but also then communicate it to our clients so that they had the most up-to-date information and that they understood what the new recommendations were. We also had to totally move what was our normally in-facility consultant pharmacy service to a remote model because even though they couldn't go into facilities, there was still government regulation that they had to do drug regimen reviews monthly. So we had to adapt an entire portion of our workforce to accommodate for that. When we talk about the vaccine rollout, we really advocated that long-term care residents and staff needed to be part of the initial phases. At the time that the plans were being made for the distribution of the vaccine, when they eventually became available, Long-term care residents at that time accounted for 6% of the total cases, but 40% of the total deaths. Now, our community retail partners, such as Walgreens and CVS and many others, they're the ones that really participated in those initial clinics, but we have now been tasked with supporting our clients with continuity of those clinics and have such been rapidly developing our own infrastructure to do so. That set of numbers, 6% and 40%, I think is just worth reflection the very outsized impact that this had in the long-term care community. How did you stay on top of it operationally? As evidence changed, as guidelines changed, and you're operating in, in all states with oftentimes statewide rules, can you walk us through an example of the kinds of systems you had to roll out and then adjust on the fly? Yeah, I think it it basically became a don't be afraid to contact us, right? (laughs) Like, let us know if you have a good idea. Like, no, no idea is a bad idea, right? What can we be doing better? How can we be the safest? And some of it is driven, you know, by local regulations. But at the end of the day, I mean, we actually published some papers, some major journals, and we're working with the CDC and publishing papers there about some of the efforts that we undertook as well as the industry undertook to really protect the residents. The vaccines have been a boon. I mean, just recently, I think it was reported that there's now a 90% drop in the number of cases. What we've even seen in the last two weeks is there's now more staff cases reported weekly than long-term care resident cases. And that just goes to show that the 80 plus percent uptake by residents is paid off. Their caseload is dropped way down. It's really cool to see that on a graph. Yeah, I know it must be. And it must feel rewarding to know that the the tireless work that you and your team have done to to implement these new systems and, and connect the infrastructure across all states and drive towards remote and innovative things like moving from plastic to paper are paying off in that way in actual impact to patients and their families. That's tremendous. Yeah. And so, I think the, probably the best way, and I'll, you know, I'll take one from our marketing team, but our tagline is national expertise and community focus. So we really, really strive from 
the corporate level, the national level, if you will, to work with our local partners, our local pharmacies, and all that just to really make sure we are doing the best that we can. I think that's uh, commendable. I'd like to take that idea of doing the best that you can, and now we're just into talking about precision medicine, you know, nominally the, the reason why we're here talking today and the point of our show. When we think about pharmacogenetics, I know this is an area that you have interest in and that you have worked on previously. It, it's something that does touch the long-term care setting, particularly because of the high medication load. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about your interest in pharmacogenetics and, and your impression of it in that setting? I do have not a deep personal history, but I do have a, a personal relationship with pharmacogenetic testing. And I'm probably going to use pharmacogenomic and pharmacogenetic interchangeably here. But you know this too. It's not necessarily a new technology, right? But it is still the cutting edge, especially in the field of pharmacy. There's been this evolution over many years of understanding how medications work that has evolved as technology has also advanced. So it used to be the study of pharmacodynamics or how drugs work. Then it was the study of pharmacokinetics or what the body does to those drugs. And then most recently, it's the study of pharmacogenomics or the effect of an individual's genetics on how a drug works or what the body does to it. Or more specifically, how one's genetics cause different enzymes in the bodies to be expressed that are involved in different functions involving medications. And this is definitely an exciting field study because we are all different, right? For the most part, our genes do not change. They're what makes us unique. Back 10 years ago when I was in pharmacy school, I participated in a study that was looking at how an individual's genes affect the enzyme that breaks down the blood thinner warfarin in terms of how quickly it is broken down by the body. And warfarin is a medication that is notorious for being difficult to find the perfect dose. It turns out that a person's genetics can play into this, among other things, like an irregular or regular diet. Now, when you look at the package insert or the information that comes with a bottle of warfarin nowadays, there's actually dosing recommendations for an initial dose based on a person's genetic profile for that enzyme. I'm not sure that you can really get much more personalized than that. Globally, looking at all those medications out there approved in the U.S. by the FDA, there's well over 230 FDA-approved drugs that have some sort of pharmacogenomic information in their labeling or their package inserts. And about 40% of the most widely prescribed medications in the U.S. can be guided by a pharmacogenomic test. That is, their dose can be optimized based on an individual's genetic profile. And that optimization is not necessarily just the ability to get a better efficacy. It can also be used to prevent toxicity or adverse events. And some medications, as an example, are what we call prodrugs that have to be metabolized or broken down into an active ingredient. If an individual doesn't make that enzyme that converts the prodrug to the active drug, or they make a very weak version of it, they may never realize the effects of that medication. And for some of those medications that are used in stroke prevention, this is obviously a very important piece of information to know. Alternatively, they could make a very strong version of the enzyme that breaks it down so strongly that the individual in this instance doesn't see the benefit of that medication. This type of information lets the provider select a different medication or, if they can in this case, change the dose. Another example that I like to use is for someone that's on a sleep medication and they express the enzyme that would break it down very poorly. We call them you know, poor metabolizers or very poor metabolizers. They could remain drowsy for hours longer than they were supposed to be because the body isn't clearing it like a normal expression of that enzyme. A prescriber armed with that type of pharmacogenetic information would know right off the bat that they need to either reduce the dose or prescribe another medication not broken down by that particular enzyme. 
And both those examples I gave talk about the breakdown of medications, but that's not the only part of the whole medication, biologic interaction that takes place in your body. Genetics can also affect how a medication is transported within the body, which could include if it's even absorbed in your GI tract. So you may not even absorb it out of the gut to begin with. That's all, I think, really critical learning for anyone listening, that there are many application areas, as many conditions, and in particular, if someone is polychronic or if they are on many medications, there's a lot of opportunities for optimization using information, such as pharmacogenetics. One thing that jumps out to me, though, is, is thinking about these two topics at once, thinking about the journey that you were on with Operation Warp Speed and with the vaccine rollout and learnings from that, and then trying to apply them down to novel programs that are likely to follow the pandemic, such as pharmacogenetics. Are there any aspects of the vaccine rollout that we think can inform how we can best approach these novel programs in the future? Yeah, so I think that the best correlation here is that the providers, prescribers, as well as the public should not be afraid to embrace new technologies. And what I mean by that is, especially in relation to Operation Warp Speed, is just look at the outstanding efficacy rates for the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines that both Moderna and Pfizer have produced. 95, 94.5% efficacy. This is critical to, to think about because they're both the first vaccines of their type. And we're not talking COVID-19 vaccines, which they are the first of that type, but they're the first of the type to use the platform utilizing mRNA technology. Now, even though it seems like they were developed at a breakneck pace or warp speed, there would actually been ongoing work for several years in their development. So I see pharmacogenomics in the same light. Yes, up front, it appears to be a new technology, but it's actually been studied for years. So we should use the information it provides as part of the decision process around medications. That's really interesting. And I'm also thinking of your comment a couple minutes ago around how you responded to the need to innovate quickly through 2020 and 2021 by being very responsive and listening and paying attention to what was happening to people on the ground. I think you phrased it, don't hesitate, call us. I think that perspective or that approach would be helpful in launching an innovative program like pharmacogenetics across some challenging institutionalized settings. Oh, certainly. Skilled nursing facilities, big opportunity there, but even outside of those settings, assisted living. Many of those type of facilities have a falls program in place. So they want to make sure potential area of litigation for them and the, the, the largest area of litigation for them is a resident falling in their facilities and getting harmed. So the most common reason for falls to occur is the mix of medications that resident is on. And the piece of information that could be missing there is it's kind of that example I gave with sleep medication. Maybe that individual is having trouble breaking down certain medications and they're sticking around long in the body and they're causing a toxicity of drowsiness. We think of toxicity as poison, but that's not necessarily true. It's just it's there and it's causing an adverse event. So if an assisted living facility to really take their falls program to the next level, they might look at implementing some sort of pharmacogenomic program with their pharmacy or outside of it, but to really look at individualized medicine here, right? Like, why is Mrs. Smith falling? Is it because she can't break down her sleep medication or anxiety medication? It's, it's making her drowsy. It's leading to a fall. Another setting that we service that could definitely benefit is the intellectual and developmentally disabled population. 
those individuals are younger than our assisted living and our skilled nursing facility residents. However, they're on just as many medications and they are being treated for similar disease states. They're also usually on or can be on seizure medications and seizure medications are pretty commonly known to be affected by those enzymes that break down medications as well. So there may be opportunities for those individuals to also benefit from a pharmacogenetic profiling. I think that that blending of the issues of improper medications or improper dose with just the the larger issue of non-optimized medication plans overall, where you see excessive medication load is really important in the sense that pharmacogenetic information isn't just to direct a maybe better medication choice along one condition variable. It can be to help an overall medication plan become more personalized, including deprescribing and lessening medication load where possible or where appropriate. Very, very interesting. So are there any other areas where you see opportunities or challenges for precision medicine in long-term care? There is one major challenge I see that needs to be overcome, and that's really acceptance by the federal government. And what I really mean by that is obviously in the U.S., but also from the FDA. So for us, for individuals that are in long-term care settings, the federal government is the primary payer, so to speak, <laughs> whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, and once again, it's across all those different institutional settings normally. So it's very important to have their buy-in. If you go to the FDA's website, the FDA has a little bit of a double speak going on, if you will. They say that both that pharmacogenetic testing has a place in prescribing decisions. However, it should not be the only key piece of information to consider. It's important. It's true. You don't want to use just one piece of many pieces of information. But they also say that its utility is not yet fully known, which in another 10 years, it's very possible that that type of guidance could be totally different, right? That this type of testing becomes very commonplace. Yeah, it, it certainly has been a changing landscape from a regulatory perspective as people look at the, the approach to pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenetic testing. But, you know, in fairness, it's also been a changing landscape in terms of the evidence and in terms of the broad coalition across the healthcare community coming together to establish shared guidelines and a shared perspective on what we can and can't say from the evidence. We really think that evidence basis is important to keep an eye on and, and to always stay very aware of where is the line. Anyway, that, this has been an excellent discussion, Stephen. I appreciate you coming on the show. If there were people here and they wanted to have one key takeaway about innovation in long-term care pharmacy, what would you want them to know? Long-term care pharmacy tends to be viewed as kind of a dinosaur or at least moving at a dinosaur pace. But let's take a page from Operation Warp Speed. Let's not be afraid to embrace new technology, especially as one as painless as a mouth swab to learn more about how your body breaks down and transports medications. I love that. It's clean and concise. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. If people listening want to reach out to you directly and learn more about your work or the work in Far America, what's the best way to reach you? Absolutely. I'd love to have individuals reach out to me. The best place to find me is probably LinkedIn. You can track me down on there and my contact information will be in the show notes. Absolutely. Thanks again, Stephen. I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Rory.